On Sunday morning, we're looking at the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order. And it's kind of fun because as you do it that way, you hit everything that he has to say about everything that he says something about. So we head into a new section of things this morning. Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. And he, that is Jesus, said to his disciples, There was a certain rich man who had a steward. And an accusation was brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. And so he called him and he said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. And then the steward said within himself, He's just been fired, by the way. The steward said within himself, What shall I do? And that's an obvious question that occurs, isn't it? For my master is taking away the stewardship from me. I cannot dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I have resolved what to do, that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may, that they, let's try verse 4 again. I have resolved what to do, that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. And so he called one of his master's debtors to him and said to the first, how much do you, do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And so he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write eighty. And so the master commended the unjust steward because he dealt shrewdly. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light, that is, Christians. And Jesus said, and here's his commentary on this, And I say to you, make friends for yourself by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail they may receive you into an everlasting home. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much, and he who is unjust in what is least is also unjust in much. And therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard all these things, and they derided Jesus. And they said to him, you, and he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts, for what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word. We thank you that we get to build our lives on truth that is going to not only outlive all of the storms of this life, but it's going to outlive the heavens and the earth. And Lord, we have never known your word to be proven true, uh, untrue in a, on an international level, a national level, Lord, or even an individual level. It always has the final say. And Lord, we pray that you would open this passage up to us and teach us these things that were important enough to you that you've included it in your book. And we ask it of you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Jesus is surrounded by a great crowd that is made up, we're told, of disciples, that is, 
men and women who were followers of his, but also made up of religious leaders, and very specifically religious leaders known as the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus has just finished speaking to those religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, a series of parables, uh, three parables, <coughs> excuse me, to be specific, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son or the prodigal son. It's important to notice in chapter 16, verse 1, that Jesus is no longer speaking to the religious leaders, but he now turns his attention to his disciples, and so he is speaking to them here, those that are followers of his, and he speaks to them a parable that is known as the parable as of the unjust steward. And so he is instructing us related how we are as his followers to view money and how we are to use money in this world. It's been my observation, and I've been a Christian since 1980, at least walking with the Lord since that time. But it's been my observation in that time that many churches and many ministries seem to fall into one of two great extremes when it comes to addressing what the Bible teaches related to money. You have churches and ministries who do nothing but talk about what the Bible says about money, as if there's nothing else in the entire Bible to teach about. Then on the other end of the extreme, you have uh, ministries that will almost jump over any passage in the Bible that talks about money or how we're to view money, how we're to use money, and uh, one becomes almost apologetic for even raising so crass a subject matter in such polite company, you know. And, so, and, and they're trying to avoid that other extreme uh, by not wanting to be identified or identifying the Lord as being all about money or this church or this ministry being all about money. But neither of those extremes are healthy, and certainly neither of them are biblical. And I think that more than ever, given the financial condition not only of our country, but of the whole world, I think that among us, as Jesus' disciples, there ought to be a very heightened eagerness on our part to know, number one, what it is that he says about money in our lives, again, how we're to view it and how we're to use it, and then bringing to that teaching an eagerness to obey him. He's the only one who knows what he's talking about on any subject in the world, including money. And so I'm thankful that he addresses it in his word. The parable itself is an interesting one. We're told in verse 1 that there was a certain rich man who had a steward. And this is, was, again, imagery that was very, very familiar to all of them. And so this rich man... And uh, like rich men in any age, uh, people that are rich, and especially if they don't do it by, you know, inheriting some vast sum that they haven't developed enough character to handle it in a proper way, but if they've honestly and through hard work they have become wealthy in this world, uh, that type of person, and there's a certain kind of person who, whether through frugality or whether through just an ability to make money, I know people. And I don't have this particular gift, but what they touch in terms of business, it turns to gold, one thing after another. 
But one of the things that happens with a person that is particularly wealthy is that usually they end up with so much wealth that it's impossible for them to keep track of it on their own. They find themselves in a place where they must decide, am I going to give myself to the further development of what it is that I'm involved in, moving this thing forward so that it continues to be prosperous, or am I going to vacate that vision side of this thing and then now just take care of the wealth that I already have? And typically a wealthy person will look and they enjoy the vision angle. They enjoy moving things forward. But they don't have enough time resources or mental or emotional resources to then properly take care of and manage what is immediately behind them. And so what they would do both then and now is that they would hire what was known as a steward. And a steward was basically a servant in those days who had administrative skill. And so today we would call them an administrative assistant. We would call them someone's right-hand man. A steward never owned anything of his own. He was hired by the rich man or hired by the head of the estate. And he simply managed another man's money. A steward never made any ultimate decisions about his master's Money. That was not a responsibility that was given to him. His responsibility was to take orders from the man who owned the money and then to, to a T, follow those orders to do exactly what the owner of the resources wanted to have done to the resources. He was to make sure that every wish of that owner was accomplished. And thus, the single most important a uh, character trait in a steward was that he be faithful, that the owner could come to him and give him orders related to his resources and that he could know, I don't have to think about that again. This steward is going to do exactly what I have told him to do. And the Apostle Paul, speaking of the importance of, of obedience and faithfulness, uh, in a steward, and, and being supreme is, is the most important characteristic in a steward, wrote to the Corinthians and he said, and in a spiritual vein, so let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God, and moreover it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. Well, this man, we're told in verse 1, has a steward who is not faithful. And that's something that no one can afford. And so this man is informed, this rich man, that his steward is failing him in the one place that a steward cannot fail a master, and that is in the area of faithfulness. And so he, this steward is guilty of wasting his master's goods. He's not going to be fired because of an economic climate or anything like that. He is going to be fired uh, for incompetence. Well, there, no rich man, verse 2, uh, at least no rich man who hopes to remain a rich man, uh, can afford an unfaithful steward. He can't afford that situation to continue to go on. And so he calls the unfaithful steward before him. He demands that his financial records be brought up to date, that he give a final account of his stewardship, and then he proceeded uh, to fire the man. Well, if you put yourself in the steward's place, 
Um, he does exactly what any of us might do uh, in his shoes, and that is you begin to rack your brain for how in the world am I going to make a living now? And it's interesting, he knows what he cannot do now to make a living. He says, I cannot dig, I cannot earn a living by manual labor. So he is either older uh, or he has some kind of a physical infirmity that won't allow that. He not only knows what he cannot do, he knows also what he doesn't want to do, and that is he doesn't want to end up a beggar spending the rest of his life earning his living by uh, begging. And so he comes upon an idea. And uh, so he called to himself some of the men that he knew, some of the fellow businessmen in town that he knew owed his master money. And the first man, we're told, owed his master a hundred measures of oil. And the steward, unjust steward, immediately took the accounting book and he lowered it to 50. So he cut this man's debt in half. half. He marked half of the bill is paid. This is a very large sum of money that he is relieving this man of. Uh, it was worth this uh, 50 measures of oil was worth a thousand denarii. A denarii was a day's wage for a laboring man. So we're talking about almost three years wages for blue collar uh, worker. The second man he called also owed his master a hundred measures of wheat, and the, uh, likewise the steward uh, reduced it to 80. So he cut 20% off what was owed there, marked the bill as 20% paid. Again, a very large sum of money. This 20% represented 2,500 denarii. So now we're talking about the equivalent of seven years' wages for a blue-collar worker in that, that culture. He gives his reasons in verse 4, his reason singular in verse 4, for why he has done this. He's been fired, and he realizes he has only a very, very short window of time in which to secure his future. And he figures that by significantly reducing the debt of these two men, that when he is ultimately left homeless, they will now be obligated to him to bring him into their house. And what this man has done here is the point, uh, the whole point of the parable. And the whole point of the parable is this. He used his present opportunities to secure his future. He used his present opportunities to secure his future. He's got a very narrow window of time. Life is a very narrow window of time. He has a very narrow window of time during which to secure the comfortable future that he desired. And he did something about it. Now, when the master got word of all of this, the actions of his steward, there in verse 8, he commended the steward for his shrewdness. Very important to understand that the master did not commend him for his honesty or for his faithfulness. Sometimes this passage is very confusing to people, especially the first time that we read it through. It's like, boy, the Lord let... I, I can rip off my employer... And God's okay with that? Yeah, but only 50%. And 80%. That's not what it's talking about here. He, he doesn't commend him for his dishonesty, but for his shrewdness. He commends this uh, steward for his foresight. 
He looked into the future. He knew what kind of a future he wanted. He wanted a blessed future, wanted a comfortable future, and he did everything in his power to uh, assure that that would be in his future. He made provision for it. And so it was like the master was saying, I don't like what he, what he did to me, but you've got to give him credit for using his find, final window of opportunity here to secure his future. Now Jesus takes that parable in verse 9, and he then applies it, really in end of verse 8 and verse 9, he applies it to us as his disciples. And he teaches us as his disciples that we are to be the same, and that we are to do the same. Notice that Jesus again observes concerning the unjust steward at the end of verse 8. He said, the sons of this world, that's people that aren't born again, people that don't know God or love God, that they just operate in the context of money, making money, loving money, living in the context of the eternal. He said, the sons of the temporal, rather, the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light that is Christians. In other words, Jesus is saying the unsaved world is far shrewder in preparing for a rich, full retirement. They are far shrewder in preparing for uh, those uh, few years at the end of, uh, of their life, their a blessed retirement, then God's people are at planning for a rich, blessed eternity at the end of our lives. And so Jesus commends their shrewd use of the present to secure the future. He doesn't, again, commend uh, the dishonesty at all, doesn't commend the methods of the world, but what he commends is the focus of the world to prepare for retirement, uh, a comfortable future. Not only their focus, but their zeal in doing it, their urgency in doing it. And you watch so often how the world secures uh, for the future, for retirement. And this is moved over here, and this is moved over there. And every day the interest rate and is at a quarter percent. And what's happening over here? And the movement, I mean the, the attention that is given, the zeal with which uh, a, a person gives to that, to secure a few years at the end of their life. And nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with a savings account. Nothing wrong with a retirement account. Nothing wrong with uh, saving for our old age. It just shouldn't be that a per all of a person's money is going into that. But you, you, here is this thing where Jesus makes note of, of just the effort, the zeal, the urgency with which people begin to save and to put together and all, especially as they're heading toward that, that time in life. And in verse 9, Jesus instructs us to learn something from them uh, in this regard. And he's saying essentially that we should possess the same focus, the same zeal, the same urgency in preparing for a rich, blessed eternity and entrance into heaven, which is forever, to do what they are willing to do for a few short years for most people, and for us to do it in the light of eternity. And Jesus says there, and when you fail, in verse 9, and when he says that, when you fail, it refers to our death and our entrance into heaven. 
how in the world does a Christian ensure a rich, abundant entrance into heaven, a rich, abundant reward in eternity in heaven? And Jesus tells us, by making friends for ourselves by unrighteous mammon. In other words, using our money in a way that impacts people for eternity. Using our money in a way that advances the kingdom of God in this world. The gospel message throughout this world. Using our resources in a way that results in the salvation of people that we may never ever meet in this life, but one day we will meet in heaven and who will become our friends as a result forever. How does a person do that? Uh, impact and advance the kingdom in this kind of a way. Invest in, in the way that God calls us uh, to, to give and invest. Well, one way is by giving tithes and offerings, obviously, to their local church. Another way is to support missionaries around the world, uh, to buy Bibles in different languages, to be dispersed in countries where Bibles are still very, very scarce. So many of you have, uh, are supporting Dalit children there in India through Gospel for Asia and uh, being a part of a new generation raised in the things of the Lord, of Christians there in India. That's one of the ways that we can do it. It also involves the individual promptings of the Holy Spirit in our lives concerning individuals that are around us, where God can speak to us to uh, give someone a bag of groceries or two in the name of the Lord to maybe buy someone a battery or a new starter for their car that has gone out or a tank of gas or to do something where the Lord leads us in a particular situation to use our material resources in the name of the Lord and to know that when He leads us that He's working both ends and He's advancing the kingdom of God in that person's heart, in that person's uh, life. This is how Jesus tells us to handle our money in order to be wealthy in heaven because we'll not only be rewarded for it here but we'll be rewarded for it in heaven. Now I think that it's very very important to recognize that what Jesus is talking about here is money. <laughs> He's talking about material wealth. The word that's used there in verse 9 and then later in verse 11 the word mammon it's Aramaic for money. The reason I mention it is this. Very often when I hear someone teach on a passage like this or something where Jesus is... Jesus had a, a fair vocabulary. So he knew how to say what he wanted to say. So if he wants to talk about money, he knows how to talk about money. If he wants to talk about time, he knows how to talk about time. If he wants to talk about talent, he knows how to talk about talent. And very often I will listen to people take passages where Jesus speaks very specifically about money. And they will then begin to talk about how we give to God, not only in terms of money, but in terms of our talent, our expertise, in terms of our time. All of, and all of that is wonderful. 
And all of that is true. But in this passage, he's not talking about our time. And he's not talking about our expertise. He's talking about our money. And, uh, and, and it, it, no matter what Jesus is saying here is that no Christian is giving materially as Jesus describes here who does not give of their material wealth in some way. The reason I think it's important to realize this is because of our wicked hearts on this. Because if I throw time and I throw expertise in here as, as a way of giving, there is a group of people who will listen to that and say, oh, I don't have to give of my resources to the advancement of spiritual things in this world. All I have to do is give my time or my area of expertise. And I feel that I am off the hook related to uh, uh, money. But that isn't good enough. There seems to be something about giving money toward the advancement of the kingdom that tests our hearts like nothing else. You believe that, don't you? You believe that, don't you? Yes, it does. I will... The tendency uh, in this fallen nature of mine, you share it, it is much easier to give my time than to give the money. Much easier to give expertise than to give money in a way that God calls us to give money. And so he's very, very specific here. Now Jesus, notice that he follows his instruction um, by giving several warnings regarding what will keep us from being this kind of a giver. By the way, there won't be a second offering. Not priming you for anything here. So he gives us several warnings about what will keep us as Christians from using our present window of opportunity to secure a rich, blessed entrance into heaven. And the first thing that he addresses in verse 10 is the self-deception of thinking that I am, uh, faith, uh, I am unfaithful to the teaching of Jesus only because I don't have very much. As soon as I get some real money, as soon as I get a real job, then I'll start to be faithful in this area of my life. And the idea is that once I get a certain amount of money or a certain income level and all, then at that point it, I will readily become faithful to God in this area uh, of money. And apparently it's an excuse that heaven hears uh, frequently enough that Jesus makes it the first thing that he warns uh, against in terms of uh, what will keep us from being obedient to him in all of this. And the fact of the matter is, is this idea that once I get some real money, I'll be faithful. Once I get a certain income, then I'll be faithful in this area. Jesus is saying it's a self-deception. The person who's faithful in a little will be faithful in much. The person who is unfaithful in little doesn't become suddenly faithful when they have much. It doesn't work that way. He will continue to be unfaithful when he has much. And Jesus declares essentially that the person who won't be faithful with $200 
won't be faithful with $2,000 or $20,000 or $200,000 or $2 million. And heaven is able to look at the body of Christ all day long and knows you know, what is true and what isn't true related to, to all of, of this. And so what we uh, are now with the money we have, Jesus is saying, is what we will be more of when we have more money. One of the things that happens, I think, so often uh, that is a hindrance to uh, giving to the Lord in the way that the Bible calls us to, and, and oftentimes, I think, most often in a Christian who refuses to obey, obey Jesus' teaching in this area, is typically they will do it because uh, money, they view money as their supreme security in life and not the promises of God or God himself. And so the thinking that we can think is we look at it and say, well, as soon as I, got, as soon as I get a certain amount of money, then I'll have a sense of security, and then I'll feel free to give to the things of the Lord. But the problem is, is that none of us can ever accumulate enough money that it will ever make us feel secure in this world. Because the world is so uncertain, and we've certainly learned that in the last two years, haven't we? On many levels, certainly on a financial level. But the world is so uncertain and so outside of our control that we think, oh, once I have $2,000 in the bank, or once I have $20,000 in the bank, or $200,000 in the bank, but the problem is, is we can accumulate that wealth, have that money there that we set that goal as soon as that's there and we get to that place and we think that we'll be free now in terms of being concerned about our future and the security of our future. But all that happens when we reach that point is we notice a whole new group of things and uncertainties in life that are bigger than the 200,000. And so now it needs to be a half million. Now it needs to be a million. Or whatever it is, is you start to head into these kind of sums. And the point is, is that no one will ever, if they're waiting till they have enough money to where they feel secure to give obediently to God, it, it never happens because uh, the money can never provide a sense of security in this world. The only place a, a sense of security that a person experiences in life is to believe that God is our God and that He is going to take care of our future and He is going to provide for us as He gives us His promises in His Word. Everybody else worries in the world. Uh, only the person that believes that God is the source is the one that can, can have peace in that. And so uh, the idea is, is that you know, if, if a person, this, the money is their sense of security uh, solely related to the future, that person will never start to give because they will never ever have enough. And thus they will never uh, invest in the Lord's uh, work. I think another great enemy uh, to faithfulness to Jesus' teaching in the area of money is just plain selfishness. And uh, we're selfish from the Garden of Eden, from Adam and Eve. It's in us, a selfishness. There can be a tendency to say, I'm not going to spend any money on anything that does not return obvious physical value to me. And uh, so I'm not going to do it. And, and there's that selfishness. One of the great things, and it's a funny thing, it's a byproduct of giving the way that Jesus calls us to give in the Scriptures, is every time we 
give the way that Jesus calls us to, we give away a little bit more of our selfishness. Some of us have a lot to give away. But there's something that happens when a person gives toward the work of the Lord, there's a sense of saying, I, am, I, am, I feel freer than I ever have before. As I, as I give. I've given away a little bit of my selfishness, and it's a step in the right direction here, a step that I want to continue uh, in my life. I think also, before we leave this, I think perhaps the greatest enemy to faithfulness, to uh, the Jesus in this area of money, is to think enough about heaven. And the realization that uh, one day we will stand there, and, and heaven is more sure this morning than the chairs that you're sitting in or the pulpit that I'm standing behind. He's talking to disciples, not talking about how to get into heaven. You don't get into heaven by money. <laughs> They're already on their way to heaven. The issue is an abundant, rich entrance and eternity. And, and so there, there needs to be that time where you just, in our lives, where there needs to be consideration of the fact that there is a life for me on the other side of this life. And to really think about eternity, the reality of it. And then we'll find ourselves uh, be wanting to invest uh, in it. There's much more beyond this side of things. I, I was talking with um, someone a couple of months back. And, you know, the stock market was in its free fall. We don't know where it will go uh, from here. But it's not in a free fall, at least, the last month or so. Uh, That's the bright side related to it. I mean, it could, it could obviously, everything could tumble even more. But the, uh, this man I was talking with, he said, his wife, they're not, you know, rich people or anything like that, but they have a little bit saved and a little bit in the investments and that kind of thing. She said to her husband, she said, I want you to, and I'm, this is not tax, this is not investment advice, by the way. You do whatever you want, stock market wise or whatever. People are a lot smarter than me. But for her, she looked at it and she said, would you move these things away because I don't want to be glued to the internet every day knowing what the stock market is doing. I don't want to live life that way. And she's a believer. And, uh, and, and there can be that, that kind of thing where a person says, listen, I don't, I don't want that to be the dominant influence in my life and what I'm thinking about. I want to think about heaven. I want to think about the things of God. I want to think about the advancement of, of the gospel. And so if a person really, really believes that uh, there's an eternal heaven is one day going to be our portion, then it will certainly cause us to uh, give resources uh, toward the things of the Lord in order to secure a very rich entrance there. A failure, notice in verses 11 and, two, uh, 11 and 12, a failure to be faithful in this area really limits what God will be able to entrust to us spiritually. It prevents him from giving to us what Jesus calls the true riches. In other words, if I will not be faithful in something that is least, and he calls money something that's least in verse 10. So apparently Jesus, and I don't say, I don't say this to be offensive or anything like that, but apparently Jesus does not view among his disciples 
a willingness to give toward the advancement of his gospel, he doesn't view that as a great thing. To him, that's a Christian that's still got training wheels on the bicycle. That's not a, a gigantic thing for one of his disciples in his eyes to be faithful related to money. That's, that's not a huge, uh, huge gigantic thing. It's, a, it's something that's, that's a, a small thing in the eyes of God and the light of the bigger things. And what Jesus said is if a person is, won't be faithful in what's least, then it's a recognition on heaven's part that he cannot be trusted with bigger things, and the bigger things are called true riches. What are the true riches? Influenced, uh, increased influence for the advancement of the kingdom of God in this world. Things like the flow of the gifts of the Holy Spirit through our lives. God operating the gifts of the Holy Spirit through our lives. Somebody may say, well, the Bible says every single one of us as Christians has, a, has at least one gift of the Holy Spirit. What does that have to do with, with this and being faithful here? Yes, the Bible says every one of us has at least one spiritual gift that's been given to us supernaturally by virtue of becoming a Christian. But in all of those gifts, except for the gift of tongues, the manifestation of that gift is completely in the hands of God. And so the frequency of the use of spiritual gifts through our lives, how powerfully he uses them, how often he uses them, can be tied up in how faithful we are to financial resources. Not only the gifts of the Holy Spirit, but also uh, kingdom service, callings, spiritual offices, and positions of authority and influence in the body of Christ. Uh, Jesus says he will not entrust the office of an elder or a deacon. Uh, he will not bless the office of a prophet or a teacher or an evangelist or a worship leader or these different offices that he gives in the body of Christ he will he will not bless and uh, those positions or give those positions to someone who is not faithful in unrighteous mammon he just won't do it the anointing of the holy spirit is tied to all of this to where if a person is not faithful related to financial resources then the Lord does not feel compelled to powerfully anoint that person's service and, and ministry. From God's perspective, if a person doesn't have enough concern for the increased influence of the kingdom of God to invest in it financially, then that person does not have a sufficient concern for the increased influence of the kingdom of God to warrant God giving them these kind of things. It's in the, kind of the same way that no businessman in the world would promote an unfaithful employee to a greater position of influence in that company, thinking that, oh, if I take them from this lower position and give them a higher position, then suddenly they will become a faithful employee. No employer does that who hopes to be in business for any length of time. You look and you realize, what this person is here, he will be here. 
And, and so you don't advance that kind of, uh, of, of person. So suppose you have a man who owns a store and he gives a man a job as a clerk and the clerk steals $20 from the till every single day. Is the owner going to elevate him to a position of management? No, because what he'll do is he will take that person and he will only be increasing that man's influence in the company. And, and the influence is, is a bad influence. And so no owner of a store is going to give that kind of man uh, any greater responsibility. And because if he gave him greater responsibility, then the whole company is going to be infected by his unfaithfulness. And now the survival of the store comes into jeopardy. And so it is with the kingdom of God. The business world, you minimize the influence of unfaithful workers. You do not advance them and give them more. And God says the same thing is true of his kingdom. If there is not faithfulness in the area of money, then he does not advance their influence by giving them this kind of spiritual influence in the body of Christ and in the world. And that, and that can be, these kind of things can be kind of offensive sometimes for some people to hear. It's a joy for many others. Uh, but it's the plain fact of the matter is if a person, a person who is not faithful with unrighteous mammon is going nowhere in the ministry. They're going nowhere in their service to the Lord because God will not give them what they need then to be successful or to be fruitful. Now finally in verses 12 and 13 Jesus warns that no man can serve both God and mammon or money. No man can serve both uh, uh, mammon and money. And the interesting thing is that how we spend our money and where we spend our money reveals who our master is. Obedience to Jesus' commands concerning the use of money that reveals a person to be a servant of the Lord. God is my master. The person who is disobedient to Jesus' commands concerning the use of money simply reveals themselves to be a person who is a servant of money. And it's really just as simple as, as that. I like clarity and that helps me. To think that I can serve both God and mammon at the same time, Jesus is saying, is a self-deception. It can't happen. Because how mammon, how the world spends money, and how God would have us, how the world would have us spend our money, and how God would have us spend our money, are two entirely different Things. They're incompatible things. So a person cannot serve both God and mammon. Now notice the response of the Pharisees in verse 14 to Jesus' teaching. They derided him publicly. They made fun of him. Literally, the, the derided it means they turned up their nose at him. They, they sneered at his, his teaching. I mean, they just openly just rejected it and they mocked it. The reason was... God knew, the crowd didn't know, the crowd didn't know, God knew, Holy Spirit knew, and he gave the kisses to us in the scriptures. And the reason that he mocked, they mocked this teaching of Jesus, is that they were lovers of money. 
It's interesting. Every one of us in this room will respond to this teaching of Jesus in one way or another. And how we respond to it is a tremendous revelation of, of where we are in terms of what we truly worship in life. Jesus' response to them in verse 15 is he speaks to them and he says, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts, for what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Outwardly, they could fool other people into believing that they were spiritual people. I mean, they had the religious hats, they had the robes, they had the position, they had all of the ornamentation, they had the titles, they had all of this stuff. And so Jesus says, in essence, you're able to fool all of these other people into thinking that you're truly spiritual people, but you're not, Jesus said. And Jesus informed them that God knew better. They gave the appearance of loving God supremely, but God knew their hearts, and he knew that supremely they were lovers of money. And the love of money, Jesus said, is an abomination to God because it's idolatry. It's the worship of a created thing instead of the worship of him. And so money is a wonderful tool when it's used properly. The Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil. It doesn't say money is the root of all evil. Money can be used for good things. It can be used for terrible things. It's really amoral. It just depends on how, how we use money. But money is a wonderful tool when it's used properly and it's directed by the Holy Spirit and, and in alignment with, with the Word of God. But I'll tell you something. Money is a terrible, terrible, terrible master. When I view it as my security, when I view it as the master of my life, it's the thing that I love in life more than, than even God, if, if, if I was to be honest about it. And, and it's, a, it's a terrible master. And I think that much of the world is learning that very, very hard lesson right now. Do you realize that if the teaching of the Bible concerning money and the teaching of Jesus in the Bible concerning money was adhered to worldwide, there would be no economic crisis right now. Not anywhere in the whole wide world. There'd be plenty to take care of people, population of the world. One day it'll be like that. And it's called a millennial kingdom. That's <laughs> coming someday. Everything in this world testifies to the veracity or the truthfulness of the Word of God. Everything testifies to the fact that only God knows what He's talking about in this big wide world. And I think it's good for us as Christians when we see Jesus' teaching on money in the Bible to say, praise the Lord, He's addressing this very important area in my life. And I want this area of my life to be in line with how he knows this resource is to be used. And so the passage teaches us to use our money today in such a way that it will produce for us a rich, abundant, blessed entrance into heaven. And that means using our opportunity now to secure our future. Whether we're 12 years old and we're getting a buck fifty as an allowance from mom and dad, 
or whether wherever other place we are in life. And so that is the teaching of Jesus here. Now, if you don't know Christ today, you've never trusted in him for salvation, you need to understand Jesus is not teaching that this is how we get into heaven. You've you got to hit a certain level. Nobody really knows what it is, kind of a silent auction thing or whatever. You get, as soon as you hit that, you're in, but you don't know till. It's not. He's talking to people who are already saved. They're all going to get into heaven. It's just going to be a matter of what kind of uh, entrance are they going to have and a reward there that awaits them. Nobody gets into heaven by money. Salvation is a free gift, and we receive it by putting our faith in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. And there are going to be men and women up in front immediately after our service. And they have a badge on that says prayer. So you can identify them easily. And they'd love to pray with you this morning to give your life to Christ and to receive the forgiveness of sins and begin a real life personal relationship with God today. And it's all there for the asking. All there for the receiving. If you need prayer for anything this morning, these same men and women would love to pray with you and to pray for you. Let's stand together and we'll pray now.